0: This is Bob Morris in Desert Horticulture. Today I'd like to talk to you about which grapes to grow in the Mojave Desert, why Western Redbud is a better choice for landscapes here than Eastern Redbud, if you're doing a lawn conversion to desert landscaping, when should you control Bermuda grass and how? And if you're sick and tired of covering your freeze-tender plants, what will work? These topics and more on Desert Horticulture. Learn more about desert horticulture by signing up for my blog, Extreme Horticulture of the Desert. That's all one word, extreme horticulture, and starting with an X. Take some of my classes on Eventbrite if you're in the Las Vegas area. That's Bob Morris on Eventbrite. I'm from San Miguel Community Garden, a nonprofit garden located near North Las Vegas Airport. We're considering adding more grape plants to the garden. We have Flaming Red and Thompson grapes. You said you've grown many different varieties in the Las Vegas Valley. I was wondering if you would share with me other varieties that were successful for you so we can explore them as well. Um, You know, I have grown a lot of grapes in the Las Vegas Valley. Uh, some, A lot of them quite successfully, I, I feel like, and some of them were kind of uh, failures, but we gave it a shot. I've been doing that since about 1996. Uh, Maybe a a total of uh, 20 different uh, table grapes and about 18 wine grapes. Some of them are still being tested right now. Uh, Some of them I feel very comfortable with. For instance, uh, I would say that if you're growing them in the Las Vegas Valley, you're going to be fine with any of the grapes that are out there, but if you're in a colder climate, let's say uh St George or even above St George towards Cedar City or a little bit higher elevation, we're at two thousand foot elevation and uh and uh in the Eastern Mojave desert, if you're in a higher elevation. I would be very, very careful about using some of what we call the vinifera-type grapes. This includes Thompson Seedless. Thompson Seedless uh, came from the vinifera line. Vinifera grapes, Vitis vinifera, is a species of grape that doesn't tolerate a lot of real cold climate climate or a lot of cold conditions. So I, I would guess that, you know, we start getting around between 10 and 15 degrees Fahrenheit during the winter time and we can start to see some damage. Uh, This is one reason why I don't like to prune uh, grapes in the Las Vegas Valley until I'm pretty comfortable. Most of the dangerous cold weather has passed. I'm afraid that by pruning them and pruning them back pretty hard and then if a cold wave comes through after that, like it did this last year, that there could be some problems. So I try to avoid pruning grapes until the very, very end. In fact, what I will do sometimes is I will prune them long just to get rid of that tangled mass and then go back and reprune them again a second time closer sometime when I know growth is going to start about the second week of March. If the temperatures are normal, I'll go ahead and the first week of March I'll go ahead and prune it the second time. I'll get the first pruning done during February and then come back and re prune it again around that first week of March just to fine tune it and balance the load. That doesn't mean you're done pruning. If you're pruning grapes, of course, I'm a little side I've gotten sidetracked a little bit, but if you're pruning grapes uh you you really have to prune them more than when they start in their production and you see where the clusters are located and the sizes of the clusters of the berries then you may need you will need to go back through and prune it again just to eliminate some of those clusters so that you 'll balance the fruit load a little bit more but anyway, regardless of that, I would say that if you're growing uh if you're growing. Some of the um, t- uh, some of the table grapes that we call the table grapes those are the ones that are seedless, typically and larger berry size and they're for fresh eating primarily. Then you can grow things like Thompson seedless, Flame, which this person mentioned already, as well as Concord, Tomcord, which is a cross between Thompson and Concord, Perlet. Italia, which is actually one of my favorites, a large berry size, but it's seeded, and it can be used for wine or it can be used for fresh eating. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice grape, if you don't mind the seeds. Black Manuka, Fantasy, Ruby. Uh, right now, I've got some Canadi's Growing, Summer Royal, Suffolk, Ro- Suffolk Red, and Crimson Seedless. Uh, but they're only in their third year right now, so I'm being a little hesitant about whether to recommend them or not for the Las Vegas Valley. But anyway, some of these table grapes that I mentioned before should help get you started. Um, if we're talking about wine grapes, uh, you can use wine grapes for the juice, the must. You can make jelly with it. It's Actually, to me, wine grapes are more versatile than table grapes if you're willing to do more than just eat them out of hand if you're willing to juice them and that kind of thing they have a lot more flavors going on their intensity of flavors is better Uh, they develop a higher sugar content in them Uh, so they really have a lot more going on for them in my opinion than, seeded, than uh, seedless types that are used for table grapes. But some of those that you can try in our climate include Zinfandel, the Golden Muscat, Malbec, Syrah, Tempranillo, Barbera, Sangiovese, and those should get you started. I uh, Back in 1996, I threw in, at that time, one of my favorite wine grapes was Pinot Noir. And even though you're not supposed to grow it in hot climates, I threw five vines in, into the mix, just to see how they do. And the vines did wonderfully. They struggled a little bit the first year just because of the heat. But after they got established, no problems whatsoever at all. And the juice from those grapes was actually pretty good. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the flavor from it. So I, uh, you know... play around with it. If you've got a little bit of room, try it. It's, uh, you can get fruit in the second or third year uh, if you grow them out. So it doesn't take long to get fruit from them. If you're going to grow grapes, I would strongly suggest that you don't stress them. You, know, you, you hear these stories about wine grapes to be great. Wine grapes need to be stressed. They need to go through this stressful situation and I don't know, it's in the desert, I think that's a little bit romantic to think of it that way. Uh, to me, it's enough of a stress just living in the Mojave Desert with our climate and our weather and our temperatures. So what I'll usually do is I amend the soil at the time of planting with a good compost, and then after I'm done and I've got them established, I'll go ahead and layer over the top three to four inches of wood chips keeping the wood chips away from the vine, but I like the, uh, uh, the amendment of the wood chips. I like that they're rotting and decomposing and adding to the soil. Um, I like it that these wine grapes or table grapes are doing the best they can in this climate, uh, and I also see less stress on them when they are grown in amended soils. If they're fertilized with compost, or if they and and if they are covered with wood chips, as a mulch surface mulch, uh, when you're growing them as well, I really think they do a, a much better job delivering what they're promising to deliver under those conditions than having them stressed too much. I went to a friend's house one time who was following that old advice about stressing them, and my goodness, those grapes were just really stressed and i told her i said you just need they need to be happier to to do well in this climate they they're just way way too stressed so anyway i don't know what happened but if you see table grapes grown available in the supermarkets nine times out of ten that they'll grow here they'll grow in the mojave desert just amend the soil Use wood chips, and I think you'll be just fine. We can, in the Mojave Desert, so far, we can grow grapes without them uh, on different rootstocks. We can grow them on their own roots. So a lot of the grapes that you see available in the nurseries here uh, for sale in Nevada are on their own roots. They're not grafted. In California, they have to use grafted grapes because of some disease problems, excuse me, and some insect problems that are common to that, but so far, knock on wood, we haven't seen that problem, but if you're going to go and if you're forced to buy something on rootstocks, then 1103P, the 10R, the Schwarzman, Salt Creek Harmony, uh, many of the other grape rootstocks will do just fine in our climate and our soils. You mentioned western redbud as a better choice for landscapes in the Mojave Desert than eastern redbud. You warned me it might be hard to find and you were right. What is so special about western redbud when compared with the eastern redbud? Well, the major difference is they're a little bit easier to manage. They are easier. I won't say a little bit. They are easier. The eastern redbud is native to the United States in the eastern U.S. and southern eastern Canada. They're not native to the western United States where the soils are a lot more harsh, conditions are a lot more harsh. The western redbud, sometimes it's called California redbud, sometimes it's called Arizona redbud, just whatever the name happens to be, uh, on that, but they are more adaptable to the western soils, the western climates, the lower humidity. They can be found in upper elevations in our climates all the way through southern Nevada, south, southern Utah, southeastern Utah, northern Arizona, eastern California, all through that area. You can find the native western redbuds uh, called some different common names, but Generally, it's western redbud, and they will adapt and do much better in our climate and soils than the eastern redbud. But the eastern redbud is a lot more popular. It has been grown a lot. It's been made available in in the nursery chains, and so when you see redbud in the nurseries, it's most likely eastern redbud not Western redbud, because you really have to search and find that Western, a.k.a. California, a.k.a. Arizona redbud. I don't know why Nevada hasn't claimed, put its name in there and called Nevada redbud too, but it, Nevada's really slow about it. So anyway, it gets a little bit confusing on it, but they will perform better in our soils and in our climate. Um, so anyway, with that, uh, I... You might also try looking at the Nevada State Forest Nursery located in Floyd Lamb State Park. The Las Vegas nursery is located out there. Uh, they may have some western red bud. Uh, they do grow some of the native plants common in the western United States among some other plants as well. But if you qualify to buy from them, you might find a deal by going and looking at the State Forest Nursery out there in Floyd Lamb State Park in uh, northern, uh, north Las Vegas. We are doing a lawn conversion to desert landscaping in our front yard. Our lawn has a lot of Bermuda grass along with the fescue growing in that lawn. Our contractor told us to wait until May before spraying the lawn and killing the grass. Otherwise, the permitted grass will grow back. Is that accurate? It sure is. Uh, the timing is is really important. The fescue will be green, and the permitted grass will be a lot slower since it's a warm season grass. will be a lot slower to kick in, probably April, Mayish before it's really going to start growing strong in our climate and in your lawn. And when it's happy, when you've gone ahead and mowed your lawn, you've fertilized it, you've irrigated it, and that Bermuda and the fescue are both really happy, you can see smiles on their little faces, then go ahead and kill them. That's the best time to spray it out. So the contractor is right. If you spray it too early and it's dormant, you're not going to get very good control. And also the best time of the year, just for your information, if you're reading this, listening to this in the fall, uh, fall is a great time. It's probably the best time to spray weed killers and remove Bermuda grass from areas from your lawn. Uh, and you can go ahead, that, that's because most of the stuff is moving downward in the fall, and in the spring, most of the stuff is moving up. So you have a little bit better kill uh, using chemicals uh, in the fall than in the spring, but the spring is still a good time for that control. The typical chemical that's used is Roundup, Monsanto product, and it's sprayed on the lawn. Sprayed on the lawn when it's actively growing, killing that grass, and then uh, the grass is usually removed with a sod cutter, and then it's uh, the the plants are then put in. Usually, usually when you use Roundup, it can take seven five to seven days before you start seeing it starting to work. It's very slow. It moves into the plant very quickly and goes into the roots about 12 inches deep, but it will be slow. So when you spray it, it'll look like nothing's happened for several days, and then all of a sudden it starts to turn kind of grayish in color, and you see that it's working. That's real typical of Roundup. Real typical, very slow-acting material with it. There is another product that I would highly recommend I've been using it out in the orchard, uh, in uh, the Ahern Orchard, in uh, substitution for Roundup because we were getting some Roundup damage on some grapevines and some fruit trees from overspraying it and also being carried in the water, I believe. And that is a product called Fusilade, F-U-S-I-L-A-D-E. That Fusilade product is a grass killer. Much like Roundup, and that Roundup kills a lot of different plants, but it's really a grass killer as well, Fusilade is only a grass killer. That chemical, along with another sister chemical called, uh, called Post, P-O-A-S-T, and that's a little harder to find, by the way, that Fusillade is a pretty safe product to use around plants that aren't grasses. Now keep in mind that it will kill any grass. So if you have ornamental grasses and you accidentally or intentionally spray them, you're going to kill them. You're going to kill any of the grasses. It totes, hit Fusillade totes that you can spray right over the top of a flower bed that's filled with grassy weeds and kill all the grasses in it and not touch the flowers. And makes me a little nervous, but uh, I've heard of it done before. It's been around for a number of years, and I've never tried it. But I will say this, that it has been pretty safe to use around lots of different landscape trees and shrubs and flowers. You don't have to worry so much about overspray. I'm not saying go at it ridiculously, but you could go after those things, spray them, And if you have a little bit of overspray or it's carried in the water, you don't have to worry too much about the broadleaf trees and shrubs and flowers so much as you do with Roundup. So Fusilade or Post, if you can find it, is another product that you can use for controlling Bermuda grass rather than just plain old Roundup. So what the contractor normally does is they'll get the first kill with a Roundup product, and then uh, you can come back in later with a fusillade because you're not going to get 100% kill of the Bermuda grass. You'll maybe get 75-80% kill. There's still going to be quite a bit of it that's going to come up, pop up a little bit later. And you can, if you stay on top of it, you will pretty much get rid of it. But you can re-spray those areas with fusillade and not worry too much about... Uh, killing other plants, unless they're grasses, in, in that particular area as well. So keep that in mind and when you're using it. The first spray is usually a roundup product. The second spray you can come back in and spot spray spot spray certain areas uh, near trees and shrubs and flowers with the fuselade product, and it'll work a lot better for you, I think. It's another option for you. You talked about freezing temperatures in the valley. When we had the first freezing temperature, I covered what I thought were my most tender plants with freeze cloth, but they were damaged anyhow. If we have another freeze, do I cover them again uh, even though they've been damaged? It's a pain covering these tender plants. I realize it's a pain covering tender plants, and Keep in mind that frost blankets or frost cloths are only good for about five or six degrees when you lay them on the surface and you tack them down so they don't blow off right when it's during cold temperatures. But they're only good for five or six degrees. So if that temperature drops into 25 degrees, let's say, or 23 degrees, and your plants are good only to freezing temperatures you're going to get damage how much damage will depend upon how low the temperature gets and how long it lasts and then the age of the plants older plants typically show less damage than younger plants but again if that freezing temperature is there for a long period of time you're going to get damage secondly When you bought those freeze-tender plants, I am guessing you knew that they were tender, but you just wanted to take a chance with them. That's why you bought the frost blankets. Well, when you're buying plants that don't belong here, such as those that don't withstand freezing temperatures, you're running a risk, and you're really saying, you know what? If I value these plants, I'm going to protect these plants even if the temperatures get to freezing. Yeah, I realize you expected only one freeze to go through the valley and you could protect them with the frost blankets. Well, guess what? We had seven days in February that had freezing temperatures at night. So that meant to protect those plants if they are going to get damaged at frost, you'll have to run out there seven times in February to cover them. And remember, you just hope, got your fingers crossed, that those temperatures are not going to dip below uh, five more degrees, that their frost blanket's going to be enough and secondly when you put the frost blanket on you've covered the entire tree or you've covered the entire ground cover or whatever you're covering. The other, the other option you have is to treat them like I've talked about bougainvillea. Bougainvillea is another plant that can't withstand freezing temperatures. If it goes below freezing you have damage so what you can do is take a plastic nursery container cut the bottom out of it and slit up the side, put it around the plant, add around the when you're expecting the first freeze, and then fill that container, upside down container, with wood chip mulches or even some dry soil and give it enough insulation to keep it through the winter time. That way, if we do have freezing temperatures and the top freezes back, at least the the bottom portion of that plant is still alive and won't freeze to the ground and won't eliminate it. Typically, in our climate, if we have freezing temperatures, they don't get cold enough to eliminate plants. On occasion, they do, but usually you get enough cold temperatures that it burns them back and they'll resucker again and resprout from the base. That's just what they're going to do in this climate. And that's what tender plants are going to do. We don't really have a climate where we're not looking at freezing temperatures. We'll have occasional winters when we won't have freezing temperatures, but I've been here long enough to know that we also have temperatures that get into the teens. We have winters when the nighttime temperatures have gotten into the teens and below. So be prepared for that. Remember, you took that oath when you bought that tender plant. You're going to protect it. Otherwise, you don't deserve to have it anymore. Sorry. So, anyway, I think I hear that music uh, in the background. It's starting to pop up. I hope you learned something and join me again in this desert horticulture.